Hey everybody, my name is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Before we jump into it, I want to make a couple big announcements. Um, first off, I started a new webpage for the podcast. And if you want to maybe see some of the stuff we've covered, some of the more popular stuff, or check out what the podcast is all about, because you either just start listening or this is your very first episode, in which case, Hello, hi, thank you for listening to me ramble about anime on the internet. I've been doing it for a while, so um, thank you very much. And to that note, thank you to everybody who's been listening to the podcast lately. I always appreciate people listening to the podcast. I always love to see that it's happening. Um, And then also, I'm going to try and start to upload these episodes as YouTube videos, because that will just quite frankly, get more, um, that will just get more views on the, that'll get more ears listening to the podcast because there'll be visuals and I'll be able to take some time, some a little extra time editing some visuals so you don't get tired of my weird face that if you're watching the YouTube video right now, you will see. <laughs> I will swap that out for more relevant visuals and all that fun stuff. Um, But that said, with all that out of the way, I want to jump right into what we're talking about this week, and that is Pacific Rim The Black. Now, for those of you who maybe haven't seen Pacific Rim because it was a niche, insane nerd movie that never did really well and got a second one based on the miracle of modern movie going that is the Chinese audience freakishly loves this movie, um, the Pacific Rim. And so we got uh, Pacific Rim 2, which was like... It was certainly not as good at as the original Pacific Rim, but it wasn't at but it wasn't it didn't have the problems that Pacific Rim the Black does for a bunch of other for a bunch of reasons that I'll get into here. But Pacific Rim the Black is the first anime um Fourier for the brand of, for the Pacific Rim brand, basically. And what that means for a brand, for a IP like Pacific Rim is a lot different than what that means for a brand like, let's say, um, Avengers. There was an Avengers anime that went completely unnoticed by people by and large, that is on Disney Plus right now. Or even the um, Iron Man Armored Adventures, which you can go find on Netflix literally right now. And that's because stuff like stuff like Iron Man, stuff like um, stuff like Marvel properties, all the, like, it, you can all, something you can also find right now, you can also find the um, anime variant of the X-Men and the anime variant of Wolverine, I think you can find Iron Man Rides in the Technobore on Netflix right now. 
But um, the the big difference with something like Pacific Rim and with is that Pacific Rim was always intended to be a love letter to kaiju movies. I mean, they literally call the giant kaiju in the in the Pacific Rim universe kaiju, and um and giant robot movies and and giant robot anime rather. And it just like kind of awesome love letter composed originally by Guillermo del Toro. I'm pretty sure that somebody else directed the second one. Um, because it feels a lot different. It feels a lot more like an American merchandising stance from to like giant robot stuff than Guillermo del Toro's original work did because Guillermo del Toro was so aware of the the tropes he was playing with, the things he was doing. He was very clearly like sat down and watched the um the episode of Evangelion where they straight up have to do this like synchronicity thing, so they have to like basically learn court dance choreography together as people so they can be exactly the same out in the battlefield in giant robots. He clearly walked that and was like, Yeah, but what if it's all in the same cockpit and what if it's what if that's the whole deal? And that with a lot of other things kind of he kind of extrapolated out into what became Pacific Rim, what became the like don't the phrase is like don't chase the rabbit, you know drift compatibility, all this other stuff is so clearly based on something like Evangelion, something like um what's it called? Eureka Seven, something like Gundam, something like any number of mech anime. Um, spe- specifically, the imagery that you see with... Um, I'm not even sure if Iron Blooded Orphans was out at this point, but at the point at which um, Pacific Rim came out in theaters. But the... The imagery with them like being jacked in at the nape of the neck it's very reminiscent of something either like Ghost in the Shell or like the way that um, Gundam pilots used the Alea Vignana system in Iron-Blooded Orphans. And also, like, so much of Pacific Rim smacks of one of the most controversial Gundams of all time, and that is G-Gundam and the, like, weird full-body spandex nonsense with, like, hilarious mocap things on the shoulders and these that they wear in G Gundam to pilot Gundams without needing like a whole control panel, basically. And because of all of that anime influence, basically what ends up happening is they don't they don't have the luxury of jumping into the water and only being able to swim. They've got to, like, jump into the water and be able to Olympic backstroke immediately. Because the 
the property is so wrapped up in anime culture and anime tropes, especially from the two very niche genres that it comes from, that occasionally have big, overarching, like, wide-reaching hits, like like Godzilla or like Gundam Wing, let's say. But for the most part, most of Gundam and most of kaiju movies are very niche. You know, many people have not seen most of the Godzilla oeuvre, so to speak. And both both Pacific Rim films, regardless of their quality when compared to each other, have such a feeling of, we know what this is, we know what this means. If you've seen both Pacific Rim films, you know what the consequences of the first Pacific Rim movie look like because of the opening part, the opening sequence in the second Pacific Rim movie, when you see the main character, I forget the main character in that movie, the black guy, the black kid who becomes a pilot, drive past this massive corpse of a um of a kaiju and you see that like the world got fucked up by just having to deal with kaiju coming out of breaches constantly and you know what that look so you know what that looks like. And then we get Pacific Rim Black, which it so it's funny because Pacific Rim as it, a media property as an IP isn't super wide reaching just it's simply because of its its influences and what that means to the people who will look at it and get it because you are now slicing you are now every time you make something a something more genre specific and you zoom in on into not just a genre, but like a subgenre of that genre of a thing. You cut away more people who might be interested in it. And, but one of the unique things about a lot of that stuff is if you if it's focused enough and it's kind of well crafted enough, it can become a like an influential thing in a way that spirals out to affect so much more than what, than its own, like, field of view, basically. What I mean by that is if you look at something like, let's say, Cowboy Bebop, one of the reasons why everybody always looks at Cowboy Bebop and why you always hear that mentioned as, like, one of the cool anime is because it is so written for an appeal to to appeal to people who are western who are like western genre film not genre but western like action movie fans that is written to appeal to people who are like western the genre of wild west film fans is written to appeal to people who are crime drama fans it has such a laundry list of, like, targets that it hits perfectly 
that you can show it to most people and they'll be like, this is, this is amazing for some reason or another. Um, another great version of that in the world of anime is Evangelion. Evangelion is, even if you, if you weren't out when even when Evangelion first like smacked everybody upside the head, then it, I mean, it's not hard to understand. You see it every, every time we get a new mech anime, you see it in the bones of that, of that show. Evangelion changed what it meant to make a mech anime. It introduced the concept, not introduced the entire concept, but introduced so much to the genre that, you know, you don't get Pacific Rim without Evangelion. I'm, Arguably, you also don't get Pacific Rim without G Gundam, but, you know. <laughs> Decorations on the same side of the coin, I guess. Um, not even two different sides, both two sides of the same coin. Like, decorations on the same side of the coin. Um, but the long and short of it is, is that Pacific Rim the Black, I think, has an interest in telling a really interesting story, but it doesn't, it doesn't do what you need, it doesn't, it doesn't do a bunch of things. A, it doesn't, it doesn't give somebody who had never seen Pacific Rim a, a way to watch it and not feel like they have to do research. That's the first thing. And one of the kinds of magics of Gundam is you can dip into most Gundam shows, Universal Century or otherwise, and at some point you'll just get the the gist of like, oh, Gundam, there's all kinds of giant robots in this in this show, but Gundams are special for whatever reason. You don't need to know anything about Anaheim Electronics to enjoy a Gundam show. I, you know, um, even got something like Gundam Unicorn, they catch you up pretty quickly in that show. I don't know that much about the Universal Century. I know probably more than I would realize I do, but... I certainly don't necessarily have the knowledge base to watch that show and get as much out of it as I could, but I still enjoyed it because they made a big ass, cool ass robot that transforms from like a white unicorn thing into this big white and red nightmare Gundam. And it's a bombastic and awesome enough to like, bring you along for the ride. And also, if, like, Universal Century stuff isn't your bag, you have totally self-contained awesome things like Iron-Blooded Orphans or, like, G-Gundam or, like, any of these other, or Gundam Wing, even, where you can just jump into that show and you can love that show and you need no prior knowledge. But, which... Pacific Rim, with Pacific Rim, its biggest problem is that unless you jump in at that first movie, 
you will be pretty fucking lost for some amount of this whole thing. Of not just specific room of the black, but also it can be a struggle to watch to watch and understand some of Pacific Rim 2, like Uprising or whatever the heck it's called. Um, or Pacific Rim Uprising, I think is literally what the second, what the sequel movie is called. Because, and they do have a lot of explainers, and they do make it pretty clear pretty quick, like rules of piloting a Jaeger and all this other stuff. But, it, everything keeps folding in on itself slightly. And I think, I think A, if you're going to do that, you need to lean on it harder. And B, if you're going to say, okay, you need some prior knowledge to watch this thing, you should at the very least, you know, by go, by going in the like, referential mode harder you will give people some of the stuff that's missing by default because you'll see the um i forget the actor name the uh actor the black general character piloting solo at some point and that will be a reference to the past movies and if you're already a fan of Pacific Rim, you'll be like, oh, I remember that. That's cool. I'm glad that's the reference. But I had to say that the that Pacific Rim, the Black, had one had a big like flaw in it. It's that it chooses not to do that when you it, a it chooses not to do that. B it chooses it. They made their first season seven episodes long. And I realize that pandemic scheduling may have affected that somehow. But when you have that amount of space in it, when you're taking that amount of time, I would much rather prefer not to repeat repetitively see things and see sequences that I've seen just from a slightly different angle. Which in um, Pacific Rim of the Black, they have a moment when the um, the brother character, I forget his name, um, has to pilot solo. And like this like drunk weirdo engineer is like, you can, you can ghost pilot, you can pilot solo. And what they could have done is they could have taken that and they could have had the file he accessed the ghost pilot with be the one of the characters who solo pilots from the movies because there's a, it's a, one of the big climactic scenes is when people solo pilot in both in both Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim Uprising. But instead they used an in like an in show scene. And it, it felt like a missed opportunity because this show, it, this show by design almost is very isolated. Like, like this is this is like Pacific Rim B sides almost. 
you're meant to understand that it happens after the first two movies, but it it's universe because it takes place on literally on Australia and away from America or Japan. It it's so isolated that this feels like a thing that happened without anybody else knowing about it in the in the Pacific Rim universe. And the one of the tricks that they that good storytellers can use effectively to get you to care about a new generation of characters is to tie them into an old generation of characters. Um you see this in uh Gundam Unicorn is actually a perfect example. Like, the big bad guy in Gun Gun of Unicorn is just overweight fucking Char Admirable. He just is. He, like, plays with both the viewer and the, um, and Menager Lynx, the friggin' insanely named, um, protagonist, and, like, pretends. Like, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But it's clear that if he's not... He's at least, like, in contact with Char before Char died or some horse shit. And it it might as well be Char admirable. It just might as well. And that links that, that links this new story, this new generation of Gundam into all the characters of just old fucking Gundam. And it does it in a really visual, understandable way if you've been involved in the, Gun, in the Gundam UC universe for, like, decades now, for over 40 years, I think. the um, I think Gundam Narratives um, was the 40-year anniversary movie. I'm not sure. But the... This Pacific Rim of the Black not choose Like, really choosing not to do that gives you, like... It's a missed opportunity to link this story together. The other part about this is is that all the Pacific Rim movies are it's like the big bad guy is not necessarily humanity. Like humanity has put aside its nonsense and is like, hey, we gotta deal with the monsters what come out the earth. And this this show wants to be about you fighting this one bat, this one asshole Australian, like, fucking, um, apocalyptic traitor, what's it called, um, warlord guy. And it, it ends up... It ends up focusing on a character, on a female character who he has basically emotionally manipulated into thinking that he's her dad, and when really it was all just fucking lies. And it does a really good job with her. But it does no work, at least so far, to connect her to the wider world of Pacific Rim. It, you know, it makes her a pilot pretty quickly. 
you know, sloths them into the main cast pretty quickly. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, but it, because it doesn't feel as connected, it doesn't feel like, okay, once we're through this and once we all get off of fucking Australia, which seems like a hell planet, which seems like a hell continent right now in Pacific Rim universe. It feels like there's not going to be a moment when you meet, you see someone from the original cast, and you're like, oh, 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 that's the, like, the three Asian pilots, the three Asian pilots who pilot the three-armed nightmare fucking Jaeger. Like, I don't, it doesn't feel like you're even going to get to see them. It feels like, It feels like you're only ever going to see original characters in a universe where you know, like, all the people you've, like, seen in previous stuff are just around the corner. And it just ends up being an an anthology series where, like, Pacific Rim the Black is, like, the 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 second season is in like it's it's somewhere completely different then that's fine and and then that then that sets it up but right now it feels like there's too much work being done by the original by the original two by the first two films in the property to really for you really to jump into the show, and I, I think that mo- that all shows, even second seasons of shows, should be able to stand on their own to some extent. And I don't think that Pacific Rim does really. Also, as always, a knock against it for the 3D CG. I understand why they did it in this case, because the sheer amount of just like graphics of, like, computer graphics that need to be produced inside a Jaeger for, like, piloting it kind of necessitate that. But I just feel like... I feel like I want to watch some old-school hand-drawn robots punching some old-school hand-drawn fucking kaiju straight in the face constantly. And the... The results of this thing is actually pretty, of, of Pacific Rim of the Black, is a pretty good, pretty compelling show. As far as the, like, narrative of, you know, the brother and sister basically being abandoned by their parents and ultimately their entire, like, weird little secret village being killed and them having to go off in a Jaeger and, like, get the fuck off Australia, it seems like the goal, is really, it's already pretty compelling. And then they meet a character who is, like, a synthetic human who can, like, psychically communicate with kaiju, it seems like. And they just name him Boy, which is the most hilarious thing, because once you realize that, 
you you just start screaming like at the TV like Kratos like boy every time they're like boy no don't go near that big flaming hole. Um, and then they introduced a female character. I really wish I remembered the other characters' names, but they they were kind of interchangeable at least in English, and. The, like, this female mercenary character becomes a supporting female character and also gives the brother a love interest because, like, that, it by default can't be his sister. And they do a pretty good job of just writing them as brother and sister. And just, like, these are two humans who grew up together and are of the same blood. We are not playing that game. Here's a love interest for the main male lead. And... As a result, once they shift the focus onto her story and they introduce who is the guy, the, like, desert warlord guy who becomes kind of the main villain, it becomes about dealing with her trauma and her deal and her baggage. And they use the, they use the like, the memory-sharing mechanic in a really interesting way there and in that they, like, basically set up a domino effect of they show you real clear how the memory mechanic works with a character who ultimately dies. Um, but then they put that to practice with the brother and the sister sharing the memories with the mercenary going to be like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. I'm sorry. That, they, they basically make the brother and sister do a Charles Xavier via Magneto move to this girl. So it creates a kind of immediate intimacy that obviously is supposed to be uncomfortable because the very deep invasion of privacy, um, even if you're not a emotionally stunted killing machine woman who has been emotionally manipulated into doing the bidding of a false father figure. Um, but if I had to say the like, narrative of the movie was missing something. There's, they get to a point with this show in seven episodes where you can't avoid the seriousness of it. And what I mean by that is that they end up... They end up being... They end up not having a real joke character. And why, why I say joke character, what I mean is they end up not having a way out of the serious shit they're in. And if you've ever watched a really good, like, emotionally driven show, they can go one of two. They, the way they pull it out of you the best is they set up this whole fucked up narrative. And then they give you breathing room. They just give you breathing room at certain points for you to breathe and be with the characters you love and spend time in the world of the show without having to deal with all the emotional baggage of the show. But what that does is it, like, brings you back down to normal so when they get in deeper into the melodrama, you're just as invested. Um, so you look at a show like Nana, for instance, the whole spoiler alert for Nana, I guess. The whole section where Nana is just with Nobu, who is the best fucking boy. And he is he is the perfect 
romantic partner for Nana, for, for, for Hachi in that show. And Hachi is happy and truly happy. And you're like, you're happy with her watching the show. And then she just has Takumi's baby in her. And the whole show just like, just like grabs you by the neck and pulls you down to the depths of the ocean with it. And the reason why that works is because they like calmed everything down and they made it all okay. And then it just immediately wasn't. And not only does that give you a breather, so like you're not like fucking constantly wrecked and like rocking in a ball while you watch the show, it gives you time with the character to give you more of the character's personality traits. And then uses that against you as a tool in its like emotional manipulation arsenal. Another great example of this is um, Eureka 7. Eureka 7 has like whole episodes, like the um, like the delivery episode, like the um, like the soccer episode, like the episode where they just go on like a couple skateboard ride through the sky. Where it's taking time to cool to cool everybody's jets and to like let the let the viewer like relax into relax back into the show before they earn your trust enough to once again pull you by the neck down the depths with them. And what I what I'm saying here is that in order for you to be really emotionally attached you to characters, you need a fuller experience of the characters. And also the, the granddaddy of mech shows. Um, the, not the granddaddy of mech shows, but the like, the like, one of the progenitors of the modern mech show, certainly Evangelion, again. They have that, choreo- that choreographing, that choreographing um, episode where most of the episode is just two teenagers trying to learn how to do a choreographed, synchronized ballet routine, um, which is insane. They, Evangelion does it a little different because it's so, it's so emotionally fraught. Oftentimes what something like Eureka would do in a full episode or in a full couple episodes, um, Evangelion accomplishes in a couple scenes or accomplishes in a much lighter, much weirder tone outside of the main narrative. Like, um, one of the side narratives of Evangelion is it's the end of the world, and everybody's getting fucking married because who the fuck cares? So you have all these deeply fucked up characters just going to wedding after wedding in their free time, and just being kind of bored of it, and it strikes you as hilarious, charming, and weird, until you're like, oh wait, the world's fucking ending, god damn it. And that feels appropriate to, like, the emotional wreckage in that show. And the reason why I'm telling you all this is because they have a mechanic character who is a chronic alcoholic. He's clearly kind of conscripted into the, like, Australian World War guy's service, not entirely out of his own volition. He uh, he is kept around because he is totally drift compatible. He is like, he's an amazingly like 
elastic brain. Only he also keeps himself permanently fucking inebriated. He's also a mechanic for he's also a Jaeger mechanic. Um so like Warlord keeps him around in his conscription and just like lets him be a lo- loaf until he needs him to try and pilot the Atlas Destroyer, the like main Jaeger in this show. And as a result, they had this the first they have this scene where they kind of demonstrate what it means to not be drift compatible. With Warlord is like, okay, he needs a second pilot. He can't, like, rules are as far as I understand them. And no one would lie to me, right? Everybody's like, no! Not wanting to be the person who'd get, whose brains turn into scrambled eggs because they try and pilot a Jaeger by themselves. Um, basically, he, he goes, hey, find a second pilot for this, for this fucking Jaeger that we took from these dumbass kids pretty early on in the show. And he just lines all of his do, all of his mercenaries up and he sends them in one at a time to be with this um, mechanic guy and the mechanic guy repeatedly drifts with like multiple fucking people and he doesn't go he doesn't go any more bananas necessarily but they like he, like, scrambles brain after brain after brain, and he tries to say, like, this isn't going to work. I'm not, very, I'm, like, none of these people are drift compatible. I can tell you right now, I just have a feel for these things. And they play this kind of fun consequence game with him. I think his name is Gabe. Gabe basically loses half his fucking what that means is he ends up, like, not knowing how to fix the Jaeger necessarily anymore, but he knows how to, like, throw knives with deadly accuracy. He knows how to juggle. And, like, all these, like, weird mercenary ambidextrous bullshit things he, like, now has in his head. Except he's clearly, like, also barely knows his name. (laughs) And as a result, he becomes this, like, character who is fully aware of the consequences of their actions when they, when he, when him and the um, mercenary girl go with the brother, sister, and once again, the character's name is entirely Boy. And he, like, he brings this, like, ironic Deadpool-esque levity to the group. And then they immediately murder him. Like, they immediately fawn. No way he lived. He had no more head. Explode his head off of his body. For dramatic effect. But then they don't, ha- they don't have a character like that. They don't have a character like the Charlie Day character in um, the original Pacific Rim to lighten everything up, to make it everything a little bit more funky and a little bit more fun and a little bit less, like, broodingly, fucking, inescapably serious. And one of the reasons why that's important is not only, like I said earlier, to give you a full sense of the characters in in any property, but to make you feel like the world is real. Because most people, even in the depths of sadness, can, like, watch a funny show and laugh their asses off. 
And if you want proof, look at the past year of the pandemic. We've all been stuck in our fucking houses, watching shit and laughing our asses off, avoiding the reality of the world is full of murder air and it's a problem. And the result is a show that feels like you're only getting half of the picture, like you're only getting half of these kids' traumatic experience because they're just, there's no, there's no like joyous moment to it. Even in a, a I'm watching, a, I started watching, um, I haven't seen very much of it yet. I started watching um, uh, High Rise Assault on Netflix and that show, even that show has like joyous little funny moments in it because if you were terrified in a like in a terrified, unwieldy, deeply depressed state, by definition in that show, you just throw yourself off the building and die. He's like that's what that means in High Rise Assault. But what? But you, like, can't live through a show like that. You as a viewer, like, that doesn't feel good for you as a viewer to watch. And if you are, as a creator, are creating something to make a viewer feel a certain set of emotions, taking them through the ebbs and flows will get them to that emotion quicker than if you just make something in like absolutely insufferable to watch. And also it's more interesting writing, it's more complex writing, it's more challenging writing. And I I feel like that gives um Pacific Rim the Black a slight hollowness because you get to like by the time you're episode seven, you know that like they're going to beat this warlord prick and then the show's going to end and you're going to be and like it's going to get a second season so they're going to have to like deal with that and it doesn't it doesn't feel as interesting or as hooked into the world of Pacific Rim as it could and I feel the people who made this show's love for the universe don't get me wrong i like i feel that this was made by a bunch of animators who and i saw i saw this story online a bunch of animators just straight up like got together and saw this movie a bunch of times because it's so it's so rare in lot for live action anime move anime movies to not have a direct corollary to a show or property. Like, you look, if you look at a movie like um, the Ghosts in a Shell live action movie, which you can go listen to a, a podcast about um, in whatever, in wherever you're getting the pod, this podcast right now in the feed between me and my cousin, where I basically have to take Danny through piece by piece. Like, where this scene came from, where that scene came from, because 
you look at the Ghost in the Shell live action movie, it is like this hodgepodge montage, so to speak, of Ghost in the Shell gifts on the internet. Like, it's like, hey, do you remember that lady who eyeballs pop open like a visor and she's chain smoking? Because we do. Here's it in this live action movie. Give us street cred. Do you remember the major diving off the roof and freaking bursting through the window in the first movie? We do. Here it is in live action. Give us some street cred. But if you also look at that movie, some of the most stunning stuff in the Ghost in the Shell movie is the original stuff in it. Like when, when in that movie, when Basso gets his robot eyes and you see him for the first time and he like, he like, He's like, and the major's like, how many fingers am I holding up? He had, like, that actor in that moment feels the most, like, weird dad joke Bato that you could ever, like, like, ever. And that makes it weird to put that, like, very charming moment where the actor, like, got at the heart of that character even if it's like in a totally movie original moment, next to a, the rest of the movie, which is by and large filled with just like these big iconic plot points and scenes from the entire Ghost in the Shell um, discography, basically. So what I'm trying to say is that oftentimes... The, Oftentimes, the risk for making a um, live-action anime movie is so great that people are so worried that all they do is that all they end up doing is putting in, you know, homages to the original. I talked about the um, Speed Racer movie a couple weeks back, and it did a really good job of making that film feel like the original Speed Racer cartoon without just ripping off the thing a whole cloth frame for frame. And what the reason why it pertains to Pacific Rim as a property is Pacific Rim is not a anime property we interpret as live action. It is what if we just full on went for it and made a live action anime that has no what if we made the movie the live action movie version of made for tv anime what if we had influences and homages to but no direct relation to anything that came before and I think that the Pacific Rim the Black is just it's not benefiting from that whole concept of the original Pacific Rim as much as it could be to make it a more compelling thing. 
it doesn't feel like enough of a big dumb action sh- show the way that like Pacific Rim two Pacific Rim two Uprising or even the original Pacific Rim felt to be to stand next to them, but it doesn't. It doesn't, and it also doesn't link the show enough to those to the original movie and the universe that the original movie carried forward that carried forward into the Pacific Rim Uprising to really ground it so you're aware that this is happening completely in the same Pacific Rim universe, so to speak. Um, and on that note, if you like this show, um, first first off, if you like the show and you're watching on YouTube, um, th- those will probably come out on Saturdays because I am need time to do editing, to do basic editing stuff because I am slow um, when working with video. But if you like this podcast, the um, episodes come out every Thursday and Sunday. I think I'm going to... Try and start doing YouTube video stuff for both Thursday and Sunday. I'm not sure yet, but um, Thursday episodes are usually something like this where I talk about a specific show, I give my thoughts and all that stuff, and then Sunday episodes are more metatextual. They're about concepts about the industry. I just did a great video on um, the $200 a month problem in anime. If you don't know what that is, definitely go check it out in the feed in whatever app you're getting this podcast on right now. And until Sunday, I've been Alex. You've been listening to Lunchbox Radio, and I'll talk to you then.